Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're going through the book of John, and just a reminder, um, glad you're here. RUF is for anyone. Uh, if you're really sure of the things that Scripture teaches about Jesus, this is a place for you. If you're really unsure, uh, if you're formally sure, uh, if you're skeptical, we're glad you're here. And the main thing we want you to know at the outset is that um, when we read Scripture, we don't think Christianity is a behavioral management program. Um, that what fundamentally is intended to happen, and this is what John says his book is about, is that we find out that experiencing the love of God makes you into a new kind of person. And the love of God is expressed, first and foremost, in the person of Jesus. And so we walk through his life. And when John wrote this book, he said in chapter 20, that I wrote this to tell you these stories about the things Jesus did and said so that you would believe and you would have life. Uh, so that's what we're here for. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll get started and talk about this story in particular. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story um, of your interaction with your friends, uh, of your interaction with sorrow and suffering. And this is a heavy topic that some of us have a lot of experience with and some of us have a little experience with. But all of us have dark experiences coming for us in the future. So I pray now that you would teach us that we would look at the person of Jesus and we would learn about you and you would draw our hearts to you. So be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so, our big question tonight, and I think this is an important question, I hear it a lot, I feel it too, and I know you do, um, is what do we do with this belief that there's a good and powerful God and there's suffering in the world? And we're going to dive headlong into that. And our family, even this summer, experienced a lot of it. Elizabeth and I, actually, within the last three months, both lost both of our grandmothers um, and went home for funerals. And both of our families are very, very close and, uh, and went through one of the more intense forms of suffering, right, that any of us are going to experience. And I know that in this room, there's a whole diversity of different kinds of suffering. And um, we want to take that seriously in RUF. And we don't want... I don't think Christianity is sentimentality. And uh, anything that doesn't take the most serious, darkest human experiences seriously is sentimentality. Uh, So we want to avoid that. But the issue of suffering and evil and the question we have about it goes something like this. This is actually the way it was explained by John Mackey, who is a philosopher uh, that died about 20 years ago and wrote on kind of ethics and philosophy of religion. Um, Not a Christian very, very postmodern, uh, was famous for saying that morality is a social construct. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as an objective sense of justice or right and wrong. But this is what he said about um, the existence of God and the existence of suffering. He said there's four points, uh, or kind of uh, the argument kind of flows through four sentences. If an all-powerful and all-loving God exists, there can be no evil unless he has a reason that, just, that would justify his permitting it. There is, that's the first statement. The second statement is, there is evil. The third statement is, there is no reason that would justify God permitting evil. So the conclusion is, therefore, an all-powerful and all-loving God does not exist. Let me go through that one more time. 
If an all-powerful and all-loving God exists, there can be no evil unless he has a reason that would justify evil and suffering. There is evil and suffering in the world, and there is no reason that would ever justify God permitting it. Therefore, God cannot exist. And all, at least an all-powerful and all-loving God doesn't exist. And what I want to do in this kind of... That's the objection. And we're going to go through this outline. This is like a, a not terribly intuitive outline, but it's the way I thought through this. Is That's the objection. You felt it. You've asked it. We've all asked it in different forms. Uh, how can God exist and there be evil in the world? Um, and there's first, I want to go through two problems with that objection, and then one bad solution that Christians are prone to offer, and then what Jesus offers us in this text. So first of all, two kind of problems with that objection. And the first problem is this. The first problem is that kind of objection assumes that the problem of suffering and evil is a problem that the Christian faith must explain. As if assuming that if you deny the existence of God, the problem of suffering and evil no longer exists. Right? My point is this. Evil and suffering is a problem for every worldview. Secular naturalism, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, it's a problem for every worldview. And I would argue, what I kind of want to make a point about quickly is, it's a bigger problem if God doesn't exist. Because if there is no God, if there is no personal Creator Lord, then what is evil and suffering? If there's no God, what is evil and suffering? You know what it is? It's nonsense. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Right? The psychological trauma we experience by observing, by being victims of, or even participants or agents in suffering... If God doesn't exist, then the way we have to describe that trauma is it's a biological mechanism that tells you to avoid evil and suffering for the better preservation of the species. And what that means, therefore, is justice is not a real thing. It doesn't exist. It's just a construct. Right? Evil is not a real thing. It doesn't exist. It's just a tool we use. Right? Anger is not a real thing, and your sadness is not a real thing. This is what Richard Dawkins said, a proponent of this worldview, right? In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find rhyme or reason nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. This is what that means. If there is no God, then the passion you feel... Take this into the... Take the the conclusions or the consequences of this thinking into your daily experience. The passion you feel for righting wrongs is nonsense. There's no weight to it. There's no meaning to it. To feel it or to not feel it, there doesn't matter. That means that being angry or sad about pain or or hurt or abuse is nonsense. There's no meaning to it. You're just as just or unjust in feeling it. When, what you feel when you encounter pain and, and, and suffering has no meaning, and your desire to make it right has no value. This means that if someone responds to injustice, to abuse, or to suffering, or to evil with indifference, I don't care and I don't feel anything, or they respond to it with humor to make light of it, or worse, they even support it, this means you have no just grounds for disagreeing with that person. Evil and suffering 
are a bigger, bigger problem if there is no God, not a smaller problem. We'd actually have to deny meaning to actually most of our primal human experiences. Right? Sadness, anger, frustration. We'd have to say all those are meaningless. The fact that you feel them might, in fact, is either your desire to promote the species or it could be weakness. But they're not meaningful in any way. So my first point is this, is that I think it's actually a bigger problem. Evil and suffering, explaining it, dealing with it, if there is no God. The second problem with that objection, I think, is that there's an underlying assumption, namely that we can know the mind of God. There's an assumption that if God had reasons for allowing evil and suffering, we could in fact know those reasons. Now, I know probably all of us can access these kind of memories, right? Do you remember things that your parents put you through when you were little that were evil and inexplicable, right? We call this violin practice at our house. (laughs) Piano lessons, uh, getting shots, right, when you're little. This is why we cried through violin lessons, being driven to swim practice, or Latin camp, all these kind of weird camps you all went to when you all <laughs> learned about Latin camp. Like, how is that a camp? <laughs> there will be no Latin camp in the New Heavens and New Earth. But why do we cry like when we're a child and we, in, and we go get shots? It's because they're painful, and we could not understand our parents' reasons for allowing that pain into our life. (coughs) Even when you actually try to explain the science of immunization and vaccination to a two-year-old, they actually can't understand it. Explaining it actually would be pointless. So consider this for a moment. Do you think the difference in cognitive ability between a two-year-old and a 30-year-old parent is greater or lesser than the cognitive ability between the creator of the universe and you? Doesn't it make more sense that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, which is what scripture says, as the heavens are higher than the earth? There's actually, in this objection, there's a naive and arrogant assumption that if God had reasons, well, we have the capacity to understand them. And that's actually what Jesus is already teaching us in the story. He's actually walking us through an episode of suffering and saying, do you see now I'm taking these people through suffering and it is for their good and they never would have understood that it was for their good. Because you learn first, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are three of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, Not merely acquaintances, but people he loved. In verse 3, Mary and Martha sent to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus says something really interesting. He says, this illness doesn't lead to death, which means this story will not end in death. But what is about to unfold has a higher purpose. He's saying what's about to unfold, the glory of God and the Son of God will be glorified through what happens. What he's already saying is, in this suffering, I have a purpose you can't understand. And then you get to verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And this is really important in verse 6. He loved them in verse 5, verse 6. And so, He loved them, and because He loved them, that's what and so means, He waited two days longer. Because He loved them, He waited longer. 
It was out of love for them that He allowed them to suffer, that He allowed Lazarus to die. And now, we actually get to see in this one episode, in a few verses, and, and it's not true that we're always going to get a clean explanation from God for why He allows things to fall out the way they do, but right here we say this, we see this, God has purposes that we can't see or understand on the front end. One, one example of this we probably all encounter. Has it ever dawned on you that actually most of the people you grow to admire in life who have character and wisdom and integrity, not just successful people, that's very, but, but we admire for deeper reasons, character, wisdom, integrity, and gentleness, they became who they are because they're suffering? It's always stories of adversity that shaped them into those kind of people. We think being successful is what makes us substantial people. That's almost never the case. Uh, Our wins kind of momentarily reward us, but they don't have actually a lot of power to deeply shape us. That suffering and adversity, on the other hand, is something that crafts people into really rich and deep and substantial and kind and wise people. Scripture teaches that all over the place. So back to the story. What is Jesus' purpose here? You hear Mary and Martha, verse 21, verse 32, say twice, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Right? Jesus, I don't understand why you didn't come. Things would have been better if you ran the world the way I thought you should run the world. And this is us. This is how we think, both in terms of suffering, but actually often about ethics as well, how we should behave. Right? If... God, if I wanted it and it would make me feel good, then you're bad for denying it of me. If I want it and I know it would make me feel good, then you're bad for not giving it to me. Right? That applies to a lot of the ways we relate to the Word of God. Both suffering, but actually also things like ethics and holiness. Right? But that's the sentiment we harbor toward God. That's what undergirds that question we have all the time. Because what Mary and Martha are saying is, you could have stopped this. And this is what happens. Right? Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I knew that you would always hear me. And I say this on the account of the people standing around me so that they may believe you sent me. And he said, with the, with, and he said these things and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. Now, where does this episode leave Mary and Martha and Lazarus? If Jesus had come four days earlier and healed his fever, right, they would have been like, Jesus, that's so cool. Like, you kind of know, did you go to Hogwarts? Like, that's amazing. Thanks so much, right? That would have been pretty cool, right? Where does it leave them when they see Jesus speak to a dead man, and he's been dead for four days, not 12 hours, not 24, not two days, four days, and he says, come out. And Lazarus rises from the dead. You know where that leaves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? With an incredible, otherworldly trust and confidence And what Jesus has said, they know that God has sent Jesus and that Jesus has power over death. Would you rather be sure that Jesus has power over fever 
or be sure that Jesus has power over death? Which has more capacity to change you as a person? To be like, oh, wow, it's cool. He can fix some fevers. I'd be like, Lazarus was dead for four days, and that didn't stop Jesus. Jesus gave them more by letting them suffer, didn't he? See, we think we can know the mind of God, and Jesus is demonstrating that he is actually better and wiser than our limited expectations of how we think he should do things. That doesn't mean we're going to figure out the cause of every suffering in this world. This is an example of the fact Jesus is wiser. One thing that is not the solution to this problem, to the problem of suffering, Christians can take a passage like this, but most often verses like Romans 8.28, and speak into situations of suffering and say, hey, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Right? Maybe you've heard that, maybe you've used that. And usually when we say that without tears in our eyes, we're usually taking it out of context and misapplying it And we're entering into suffering, whether it's ours or other people's, with what a friend of mine calls triumphalism, which is not the Christian solution, the biblical solution, or Jesus' solution to suffering. And what triumphalism says is this. Because we all know that at the end, everything's going to turn out well, we shouldn't be sad right now. Right? So we speak these kind of... These, we take verses like Romans 8.28 out of context. And in some Christian circles, it's even viewed... Uh, that if you're sad, you're somehow more immature, you're somehow unspiritual if you're sad. And, you know, I think I understand that instinct. I think y'all understand that instinct too, that there are times when things are so sad that we think, if I let myself feel this sadness, I will not be able to handle it. So I'm going to bury that feeling. I'm going to quote triumphalistic verses out of context because suffering is just too traumatic. And so one of the ways we protect ourselves is with that naive triumphalism. Failing to see that actually in Romans 8.28, before and around that verse, all Paul is talking about is the importance of groaning in frustration. The Bible never endorses a triumphalistic approach to suffering, and in fact it's quite the opposite. Spiritual maturity will mean that you experience more sadness like Jesus did. And that means for some of you, maybe the application tonight is to actually embrace the, the biblical command in Romans twelve fifteen to weep with those who weep. Maybe growth for you actually looks like entering into sadness. To experience the blessedness of mourning. Some of us need to actually get better at being sad and see that our unwillingness to enter into sorrow is actually a sign of our immaturity and it's also a sign of unbelief. Triumphalism is not the solution. So what is? Jesus offers us something better. God knows better than we do what we need. And what we see in this passage is that we need a God of empathy and a God of power. We need a God of empathy and a God of power. Because this is what's true. Explanations do not give us the strength to confront suffering. An explanation while intellectually satisfying, does not give us the capacity to confront suffering. Doesn't give us the comfort to endure it. What does is empathy. Someone with us. Would you rather have someone explain suffering to you or be with you in it? 
right? <laughs> if anybody has cause to be triumphalistic, it would have been Jesus, right? He knows what's about to happen. He could have said, like, y'all, I'm about to do some stuff. It's going to blow your mind, right? He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus. Better than that, he actually knows he's going to go to the cross, die for the sins of his people, satisfy divine justice, rise again from the dead, and conquer death once and for all. If anybody should be triumphalistic, it should have been Jesus. But what's beautiful about this passage is we get a window into the emotional life of our God and King. You see it a couple of different times. In verses 33 and 38, there are these two words, deeply moved. When he sees the sorrow of his friends and the sorrow of the situation, deeply moved. And every commentator says the English translations always fail on this particular passage. That, they, that the word is actually so strong they didn't know how to communicate the strength of it. Because what it is, is a, is a guttural bellowing of grief but it's also grief connected with anger. It's the, it, it, it is grief and anger whose expression de- kind of can't find itself in words, so it finds itself in a sound. That's what the Greek word there means. Jesus rages with us against suffering. But not only that, in verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus also weeps. Christians, you're called to Christ-likeness and holiness. And one of the things you need to know is that being angry with suffering in the world and being sad over suffering in the world is being Christ-like. And being triumphalistic is not. And there are a lot of applications we can draw. We, we, we see the heart of God rage against pain and suffering and we see the heart of God weep against pain and suffering. And there are a lot of things we can draw from this. But, but one thing I want us to draw out that I think is important for us as we walk into the situations of suffering is this. Is that what Jesus is giving us is friendship with God. That I know my God and He knows me. Because this is what is required for all friendship. Is empathy. For deep friendship. Not just being acquaintances but for mutual understanding. God does not invite you into a relationship of tolerance. And our culture's obsession with tolerance is a sad admission that we actually don't think people can really connect. Tolerance is, we can't connect, but we're going to figure out how to coexist. Right? Tolerance says, I don't understand you, but I'm not going to prosecute you. That's not the relationship God invites you into. He invites you into empathy. Empathy says, I understand you. Connection requires empathy. There's nothing more isolating in this world than feeling like no one else can connect with your interior life or understand it. That's what isolates us more than anything else. Right? The thoughts and the desires and the emotions that we feel and sense and we think no one else can feel. Empathy means that to connect with you, I have to find something in myself that knows the feeling you have. Jesus knows grief. Jesus knows sorrow. Jesus knows wordless anger over sad things. Would you or could you worship or connect with a God who didn't? And we can't stop at Jesus' anguish even there in this passage because His suffering goes further. His suffering goes to the cross, and the cross is the place where Jesus experiences suffering far beyond anything 
even we could ever experience. Because what Jesus did at the cross is this. He took everything that God felt toward all the ways that we have brought pain and evil and suffering into God's beautiful world. All of God's feeling about all of the pain and evil suffering that we've brought into His beautiful world, and we're all co-participants in this, right? We actually become bigger monsters when we don't believe we're all co-participants in breaking God's world. The most egregious evil is always done at the hands of people who are self-righteous. Think of themselves as more righteous than others, right? Our intense commitments destroy friendships, relationships, families, societies, economies, everything. And at the cross, Jesus absorbed the justice that was due to us because we broke the world and because we broke each other. And He suffered not just death, but He suffered the loss of connection with God. And He didn't have to. But He was cut off so we wouldn't have to be. And this is what that means about our suffering. If nothing else, take this, with, take this thought and think about this through the week. Jesus is the God who suffers. Your God suffers. There's no other religion. This is one of the many complete uniquenesses of Christianity. It's that God comes into this world and endures our suffering. And He doesn't endure it well even. It's hard for Him. He cries about it. He's angry about it. He doesn't want to be a part of it. Right? This is the way Tim Keller kind of summed it up. You have to take your suffering to the cross and you have to ask Jesus about your suffering in the shadow of the cross. God, why are you allowing evil? Why are you allowing this pain? Why are you allowing this suffering? And what happens is when you ask that question in the context of the cross is you don't get the answer to why. You very rarely will. It will be hard. You'll figure it out maybe years later. Maybe you won't figure it out in this life. But you will learn what the answer cannot be. It can't be because He doesn't love us. It can't be because He's indifferent. It can't be because He doesn't care. It can't be because He doesn't know how much it hurts. You do learn what the answer cannot be. You can't look at Jesus on the cross and say, I don't understand this suffering, but I'm pretty sure you don't love me. When you bring your suffering to the cross and you say, God, this is hard. Why? Jesus, I don't understand. And in the shadow of the cross, you know, but I know you love me. Because He came and He plunged Himself into our sin and our suffering to agree far beyond any suffering any of us will endure. Because, and here's His wisdom and His goodness. Do you know what equips us for suffering? Not an explanation. A person. You don't want an explanation in the ICU. You want someone with you. That's what brings comfort. Jesus gives us what we need. He's with us in our suffering. He cries. He's angry. He suffers more deeply than us. Jesus is sadder about the sad things in your life than you are. He's angrier about the things in your life that you're angry about. I'm not saying we have answers to all the answer to, to why or this is this thing in my life now, but we know what the answer can't be. It can't be that it doesn't love us. So endure your suffering under the shadow of the cross. 
We have a God of empathy. And we have a God of power. When Jesus speaks with Mary and Martha, that's what we also need. We need empathy and we need power. In verse 25 and 26, he makes the purpose of this episode clear. I want you to know, Mary, I want you to believe that I am the resurrection. And I'm going to do more than simply tell you that death is conquered. I'm going to show you in a small temporary way with Lazarus what I'm going to do in a huge way on Easter Sunday. Remember, miracles are small signs that teach us about larger realities. Don't you think at the end of this story, Mary and Martha have a more sure confidence that Jesus has power over death? And it's because He took them through suffering. They faced later in life, I'm confident, their own death with serenity and calm. Wouldn't you? And it's because of the suffering they went through. Had they not suffered, they wouldn't be prepared for their own death. God's answer to suffering offers us more than explanation. He offers us resurrection. All things new. This body and this world restored, made right. The promise of the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. It's actually those things for the purpose of the restoration of all things. And we complain because we don't get an explanation for every drop of suffering in the world. We can still cry out. That's fine. But we fail to see that we're getting something far better. Not an explanation, but a solution. We need somebody with us. And we need somebody who can do something about it far more than we need an explanation. For some of you thinking about the resurrection, for some Christians this might be a new concept, right? You haven't thought about it so much. And in some ways that means your hope has been kind of short-sighted up to this point. That faith for you, your Christian experience has been this kind of sense that God's not going to judge you, that He's forgiving, and periodically He's going to help you in life. And that kind of constitutes the bulk of your Christian faith. And that's fine, but this is what that does if that's all of it. Is that gives you a very limited experience of His goodness because you've only scratched the surface of the gospel. Because even Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of that's a waste. It doesn't even matter. But if He did, then our hope is not simply that our sin will be washed away, but also that the curse of death is defeated as well. And so for some Christians... You may not know the reason that you actually have a thin, kind of not vibrant spiritual life. Is it because you've taken your guilt to Jesus and you've taken your shame to Him, but you haven't taken your suffering and you haven't taken your death to Him? And said, Jesus, is there hope that you can make all things new? And when the church started in Acts, it didn't start by by them preaching simply the cross All throughout Acts, what's happening is the people who saw the resurrected Jesus, who witnessed His death, knew that He was buried, and saw Him rose again. You know what they did when you read their sermons in Acts and what they talked about and why churches sprung up everywhere all throughout the ancient Near East? It's because they went around and said, I saw the resurrected Lord. That's what they talked about, the resurrection. The cross begins the Christian message. The main thing the New Testament is about is what happened in the first century when a bunch of eyewitnesses of the resurrection walked everywhere and say, I saw resurrection. That's what the book of Acts is about, is what happens when hundreds of witnesses walk around a countryside and tell villages everywhere, I saw resurrection. 
Christians, for some of you, your your joy has been small, and your enthusiasm weak, and your holiness, your attempts at living the right way has been flagging, and it's not because Jesus hasn't done enough, and it's not because you're not good enough at being a Christian. It's because you thought He just came to kind of clear your conscience. He came to conquer sin and to conquer sin's greatest power, which is death. And worship is going to become rich for you and you actually grow in a rich experience of God's love and the hope of the gospel when you stand in the emergency room and when you stand in the ICU and you stand at graveside and you realize sadness is important. That I've been hiding from the reality of how dark things really will end for all of us. Do you know all of your relationships in this life will end in sorrow? Every single one. And it's right to be sad about that. And it denies your God image-bearing humanity to say that death is not a tragedy. And death is what Jesus came to conquer. And He does. Will you hope in Him for more? For, for all of us in this room, Christian and non-Christian alike, this is something actually, this is the resurrection might seem like a weird thing. Jesus conquered death and He's making all things new. I would actually submit, some of y'all heard me talk about this before, that re- contemplating the resurrection is the spiritual discipline y'all are awesome at. And you didn't know it. That God's like, man, they're great at that. You're like, ah, God's not really happy with how much I read my Bible or how little I pray or whatever. But one thing God thinks y'all are awesome at is contemplating the resurrection. Did you know that? Because every time you slam your fist down when a peace set doesn't work out, you know what that is? You're going, things shouldn't be this way. And God's like, I know. (laughs) When you feel left out and you're sad and you say things shouldn't be this way, God says, I know. When you cry about illness... God says, I know. When work overwhelms you, God says, I know. It wasn't supposed to be like that. When you feel the pain of relationships severed by either y'all hurting each other or by death or by whatever it is, that pain is deep. And when you feel that pain, God is saying, I know. It wasn't supposed to be like that. And what secular naturalism, right? there is no God says is, hey, your feelings about that have no real meaning. And Christianity and what God says is, no, your feelings are right. And God is doing something about it. And what you're doing when you slam your fist down is you're longing for resurrection. You're longing for new heavens and new earth. You are really good at longing for that all the time. You're great at that spiritual discipline. Everybody feel better about like Even Christians and non-Christians are like, oh, I'm actually good at one spiritual discipline, right? And, and new heavens and new earth is not a cloud city where everybody's in robes, Right? That's weird. None of us wants to go there. (laughs) And that's not the biblical view of the end of things. It's new heavens and new earth. And what that means is this world right again. Our bodies working the right way. Our relationships being whole. Work working the right way. Wars and sorrows cease. Mental distress healed. Anxiety quieted. These perishable bodies becoming imperishable. And all around and with that, woven through all of it, the assurance and the knowledge that you are loved by God and that He is with you and He is for you. This is all of our longings, Christian or not, isn't it? And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. It happened in the first century as the first part of the harvest and making all things new and He will come again. And when He comes again, all of those who are with Him will join Him. 
1 Corinthians 15, 6, 26. The last enemy will be destroyed, will be death. Hear these words of Paul. When the perishable will put on the imperishable, talking about our bodies, and the mortal puts on immortality, and then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is an enemy. What you need to do, if nothing else, wherever you are on the the spectrum of your spiritual journey, is trust your sadness. Don't explain it away. Regard suffering as an enemy. Inexplicable and overwhelming suffering. Weep about it. Be angry at it. Secularism says that's nonsense. You can do that if you want, but it has no meaning. But Jesus weeps and rages with you. But now do it looking back to the cross, knowing my God knows my suffering. He's not distant from it. He's experienced a deeper form of it. That you have a God of empathy that is with you. But secondly, you also have a God of power because you have to remember He rose again. And as Peter said, you're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable. And it's kept for you in heaven for the full experience of salvation when Jesus comes again. What are all the reasons that God allows evil and suffering and death in this world? I don't know. And sometimes it's dangerous to try to explain that too much. But I know this. His act of suffering love means that He is most certainly good. And His resurrection means that He definitely has power. And His invitation to you is to believe in Him that you can experience the comfort of His goodness and the security of His power when the inevitable comes in life. And it can carry you through life until then. Let's pray.